Grumman Long Life Vehicle, or LLV, is a boxy, light transport truck that will be most recognizable to anyone who's from, or anyone who's ever visited the United States, as a mail truck. That's because the LLV was designed by Grumman, an aerospace company, after it won a contract with the United States Postal Service to design something that would be economical to operate, capable of squeezing around tight corners and through tiny urban streets, and able to putter around from city to country to suburban areas for decades at a time, ideally for 24 years, as that was the lifespan the USPS specified in its brief to companies that pitched the agency on their proposals. So these trucks are everywhere throughout the United States, and they've been everywhere for a long time. Before the LLV was introduced, most mail carriers in the U.S. drove a Jeep DJ, also called a Dispatcher model, that was originally produced by a company called Willys Motors in 1955, which was then rebranded as Kaiser Jeep in 1963, then ultimately scooped up by American Motors Corporation, AMC, in 1970. AMC wanted the Jeep brand to add to their growing catalog of automobile models, but was then itself scooped up by Chrysler in 1987. And again, the Jeep brand was kind of the crown jewel instigating that purchase. And the Jeep DJ, in its many iterations, was part of the appeal of Jeep for Chrysler, as a government contract can be a pretty profitable and reliable paycheck. The initially newfangled LLV had some advantages over the also quite reliable and cheap and easy to upkeep Jeep DJ, though. Its internal arrangement, in particular, allowed mail carriers to get closer to curbs where mailboxes were typically perched and to more easily grab pre-sorted mail from where they are seated while driving without ever having to leave the seat. It also boasts an incredibly tight turning radius and a 1,000 pound, which is about 450 kilograms, cargo capacity, enabled in part by its low-geared three-speed transmission and low-riding axles. In theory, the LLV gets something like 17 miles per gallon on average, but in practice, it gets something closer to 10 miles per gallon because of all the stop-and-go driving mail carriers have to do in regions where this truck is optimal. Namely, those in which the mail can be delivered primarily curbside, rather than by driving from hub to hub and then parking and walking around to deliver letters and packages to buildings that are offset from the street. Although the LLV was meant to last 24 years, the USPS invested $524 million to repair its fleet of more than 100,000 of them in 2009, which is a lot of money, but kind of a bargain compared to replacing them all, which would have cost an estimated $4.2 billion. At this point, many LLVs are reaching or just past their third decade of life, and they're beginning to show their age, partly in that they have such abysmal gas mileage compared to most modern vehicles of this size, but also in that they don't have AC, their heaters break down a lot, they don't do terribly well in bad weather of any kind, and they're apparently prone to bursting into flames. More than 400 fires in LLVs have been tallied since 2014, and some of them are the consequence of bad design, 
putting windshield wiper fluid above the fuse box, for instance. But others are the consequence of just driving an older vehicle to death and endlessly repairing and replacing whatever you can on it. Eventually, something wears out permanently, or you Frankenstein the thing to such a degree that there's very little of the original truck left, ship of Theseus style, and all of the pieces of which it now consists don't work together perfectly. What I'd like to talk about today is the effort to replace these vehicles, which began in 2015 and which is finally about to come to partial fruition, beginning in 2023, though not in exactly the way many people and institutions had hoped. You are listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I'd like to unspool today comes from the Associated Press, and it's entitled U.S. Postal Service to Boost Purchases of Electric Vehicles. At the beginning of 2015, the USPS started to solicit proposals for what they called their Next Generation Delivery Vehicle, or NGDV. The NGDV was meant to replace the LLV for the Postal Service's fleet, and that meant they would need to have the option of purchasing essentially as many such vehicles as they wanted from the winner of this contract over the course of the decade following its signing. There was a big scramble to come up with solutions to the USPS's problem amongst heavy-duty vehicle companies in particular, as they tend to have the expertise for this sort of project. Ford and Tesla, for instance, may make nice consumer-grade vehicles, but this type of contract is the purview of entities like Carson, Mahindra, Utilimaster, and other companies that you've probably never heard of unless you work in an industry that uses their heavy equipment. That said, GM did try their luck at getting this contract, though they didn't make it to the final round, for which the USPS awarded a prototype contract to six suppliers, all of which then built example models of what they had in mind, half of which had hybrid energy and other alternative fuel types, and the other half conventional petroleum guzzlers, and all of which were a variety of sizes, powertrains, and other options. At the end of February 2021, it was announced that Oshkosh Defense, a company that makes military trucks and airport fire department equipment, among other things, won this contract to design and manufacture the NGDV, and they would be tasked with making and delivering somewhere between 50,000 and 165,000 such vehicles over the course of the next decade, at a cost of nearly half a billion dollars up front and up to $6 billion in total. Total. Most of the vehicles will be manufactured in Spartanburg, South Carolina at a dedicated factory for the USPS. To paint a picture of the vehicle that won this contract, without actually showing you a picture of it, though you can easily Google it and see what I'm talking about if you like, it kind of looks like an older postal service truck, an LLV, but with all the edges rounded and softened, and the top part from the hood of the vehicle upward, the windshield up to the roof stretched and made a lot taller, while the bottom part looks like it's been smushed down to be flatter. The front of the vehicle is noticeably short compared to the hood of a conventional car. And that's intentional, 
This design was apparently called the duck build option, and that shape is intended to maximize interior space while also making the truck as visible to pedestrians and other vehicles as possible. So it's tall enough inside for the mail carrier to stand up without hunching over so they can sort mail and do other types of work from within the vehicle comfortably. But it also takes up relatively little physical space, street side, and includes modern amenities like AC, a 360-degree camera, collision avoidance systems, and other such bells and whistles. One of the more celebrated aspects of this upcoming design, though, initially at least, was that it comes in two different flavors, battery-powered electric and a more typical four-cylinder engine that runs on standard gas, on petroleum. Early pitches to the public and government hinted that the majority of the new trucks would be electric from the get-go, which was exciting to a lot of environmental groups and other entities that are trying to reduce carbon emissions. But it was later announced by the former President Trump-appointed head of the USPS, who has many times voiced his climate skepticism, that only about 10% of the trucks would be electric, and the others would be internal combustion engine trucks. And trucks, by the way, that were intentionally designed to weigh 8,501 pounds which is a single pound over the Environmental Protection Agency's designation for light trucks, which thus allows it to be regulated as a heavy-duty truck, which in turn allows it to be more polluting than a light truck can legally be in the United States. The gas-powered NGDVs, because of that allowance, because of that designation, only get about 14 miles per gallon in optimal theoretical conditions but only about 8.6 miles per gallon when the air conditioner is running, which is less efficiency than was offered by the previous model truck, the LLV. All of which was a pretty big letdown for those aforementioned groups and other entities that saw this as part of a larger climate-related plan, and it triggered pushback from the EPA alongside the Biden administration and a whole lot of activist and interest groups, all of whom criticized both the USPS and Oshkosh for ignoring President Biden's executive order that U.S. government vehicles must be 100% electric by 2035. These new vehicles, if they have the intended lifespan of decades, will still be operational past that deadline, which would be a problem if they are, in fact, gas-guzzling models. In April of 2022, 16 states, Washington, D.C., New York City, and a slew of agencies and organizations all sued the USPS, demanding 100% renewable-capable vehicles for their fleet, and the following month, the USPS announced that they would increase the number of electric trucks they had on order, and they upped the number still further in July of 2022, saying that at least 50% of the trucks they initially ordered from Oshkosh would be the electric kind, and that the fuel-burning ones would be capable of having their internal systems swapped out with the electric internals so that they could be aligned with that 2035 all-electric fleet goal at some point in the future. This is just one of several similar battles happening across the U.S. right now between leaders and agencies and interest groups that hope to change the country's many fleets of vehicles over to electric versions sooner rather than later in order to hit that 2035 milestone 
but also to create demand for clean energy, electric vehicle chargers, and other infrastructure that will be required for a full electrification and clean energy transition, which itself will be necessary if the U.S. wants to have any hope of meeting its 2050 carbon neutrality commitment. The idea is that, just like a contract with the government is good for business because it creates a long-lived stream of sales over the course of years or even decades, if you can convert these sorts of fleets over to a new paradigm, repair, power, and other infrastructure will pop up around those fleets because they are reliable business. It's anyone's guess as to when enough individuals will own electric cars to make a charging station profitable in any particular location around the country. But if you can get all the post office trucks, city buses, agency-owned cars, and school buses to transition, that creates a huge flood of reliable demand that can then be met, which then in turn can spark other transitionary investments because that infrastructure is already there. These fleets of vehicles are also appealing targets because in many cases, if you can sway just a few people, just a few decisions, you can influence a huge number of vehicles and a huge chunk of the country. Instead of having to convince hundreds of thousands of individuals to do something that is initially, at least, difficult and expensive to varying degrees, you can instead convince a few politicians, and they sign some documents, and boom, it's done. A whole lot of stuff has changed, or will soon change. These are also somewhat low-hanging fruit, as the government has indeed committed to making a slew of changes, and in order to meet those commitments, investments will need to be made in them soon. So this is a matter of telling someone who knows that they need to do something soon to do it a little bit sooner instead. The writing is on the wall and there's pushback, but also a latent understanding that eventually everything will need to go this way anyway, as the companies making such vehicles are transitioning in that direction themselves regardless. At the moment, though, numbers are still fairly unimpressive within U.S. and state government fleets. As of June 2022, U.S. school districts and school bus operators in 38 states have committed to purchasing 12,275 electric school buses, which is not much. That's about how many school buses are in operation in just a single state, North Carolina. There has been a tenfold increase in purchases since August of 2021, and there are about 10,000 more government-owned EV school buses on U.S. roads today than there were at the beginning of 2022. But many of those EV school buses are actually older buses that have been converted to be electric, which is also great if you're aiming to go full EV, but it demonstrates how tricky it can be to get this type of product category to shift. Most of the new ones, the buses designed from the get-go to be EVs, are still just committed to and not yet manufactured, much less delivered and on the road in operation. Most of the functioning EV school buses today are refurbished older models. On average, according to a recent report by the World Resources Institute, it takes about 16 months from order to delivery to get an EV school bus added to your fleet. And most of the purchases and commitments up to this point for both new and upgraded old school bus orders are the result of state incentives, which is part of why California has so many orders on the books and other states are lagging way behind in comparison. California's government is heavily incentivizing the ordering and upgrading of electric school buses.
regional, and even national governments are at somewhat of a disadvantage when it comes to transitioning to electric or even plug-in hybrid vehicles, which can operate as electric vehicles but have more typical gas-burning engine backups as well, for their fleets, at least rapidly. And that applies across the board from school buses to police cars and perhaps especially the military and their vehicles, which I talk about in more detail in this month's bonus episode if you're interested. But they're at a disadvantage compared to businesses because of all of the bureaucracy involved and because it's trickier for them to spin in any new direction on a dime, while businesses can generally swerve a whole lot faster and with fewer opportunities for naysayers or any outside voices to stifle the change that those at the top want to see. And that can very much be a problem, an issue, with businesses in some cases, but when it comes to this sort of decision-making, it can be an asset. Amazon has committed to reaching net-zero carbon emissions by 2040, and they've already made some significant investments to help them reach that goal. One such investment was first announced in 2019, when then-CEO Jeff Bezos announced the company's intention to buy 100,000 electric delivery vans from an EV startup called Rivian, intending for those vans to be on the road by 2024. That deadline has been pushed back a bit, and the company is now saying that initial round of 100,000 EV vans will be deployed by 2030. But there are already quite a few in use by Amazon's delivery fleet, especially in bigger cities like Chicago and Dallas and Seattle. And the company says thousands of the vans will be in use across 100 cities by the end of 2022. Part of the reason for that delay is that while testing the vans for their intended utility, driving them for tens of thousands of miles and delivering hundreds of thousands of packages, it was determined that they needed some tweaks and upgrades in terms of safety and performance and general comfort-related features for the drivers. The idea is to solve two problems at once, get closer to that intended 2040 net-zero carbon emission goal, while also staving off some of the employment issues that Amazon has been seeing, many of which are related to their reported tendency to treat their employees like cogs in a machine, cogs that should be worked right up to their breaking point and which can be treated like autonomous robots, basically. These upgrades should help with that latter issue, reducing some of their employee turnover, which has become a major issue in some regions, while also laying the groundwork for a full-on transition to green energy in their fleet within the next 18 years. Notably, Amazon also bought a 20% stake in Rivian, which strongly implies they are intending to keep working with the company and to profit from the segue of many other companies' fleets to electric as well. Amazon competitor, Walmart, which is behind a bit in the e-commerce space, but which goes back and forth with Amazon in terms of being the biggest retailer in both the U.S. and the world, has its own electric fleet in the works. And its first deal in that space is with a relatively new EV company called Canoo, C-A-N-O-O, -O, which will deliver at least 4,500 and up to 10,000 van-like vehicles, though a timeline for delivery hasn't been forthcoming. And Walmart has said it's also expanding pilot programs with Cummins and Freightliner, the latter of which is owned by Daimler Truck, to try out other electric, hydrogen, and natural gas-powered options. 
And to be clear, natural gas is not a renewable energy source, so that option seems somewhat less likely to be chosen, as Walmart has, like Amazon, also committed to be a net-zero carbon emitter by 2040. Package delivery giant FedEx has 150 electric delivery trucks in operation in Los Angeles as of June 2022, using vehicles produced by a company called Bright Drop, which itself is only a year and a half old and is a subsidiary of General Motors. FedEx has announced that it intends to purchase 100% electric pickup and delivery vehicles by 2030, which means they will still have older vehicles on the road, but all the new ones will be electric. And for context, it has a global fleet of about 87,000 vehicles at the moment. But they're attempting to scale up those electric ambitions following a letdown in 2021 after it engaged with a high-flying, much-celebrated startup called Change, with a J instead of a G, to provide it with 1,000 delivery trucks. But then this startup failed pretty publicly and spectacularly. FedEx ultimately sued Change to try to recover nearly $4 million as a consequence of this company's collapse. FedEx competitor UPS recently invested in a UK startup called Arrival, which includes a commitment to buy up to 10,000 custom-designed EV van-like delivery vehicles, along with priority access to purchase additional vehicles if they so choose. UPS already has more than 13,000 alternative fuel vehicles in their fleet, including 1,000 electric and plug-in hybrid vehicles, all of which are in operation, and they plan to hit 40% alternative fuel vehicles in their fleet by 2025 and full carbon neutrality by 2050. And in this context, alternative fuel vehicle usually means a delivery van or truck powered by biofuels, hydrogen, or natural gas. So it's not necessarily renewable energy, it's just not regular petroleum-powered. There are parallel efforts happening in the world of sea lane shipping, with cargo ships being converted to use different types of fuels to go full electric, and in some cases to use interesting modern pole-like sails, called rotor sails, that allow them to be far more energy efficient. And the same is true in the world of airline cargo shipping though the complexity of staying light enough to fly while also having enough battery energy to fly far is tricky using our current technologies. So most efforts in that slice of this industry currently revolve around using biofuels of various sorts, which can then be subbed in with varying degrees of difficulty and expense for existing fuels, offering similar power per gallon of fuel, but being derived from cleaner sources, like algae, rather than fossil fuels. Hydrogen is also a leading competitor in this space, and that tends to be a polluting fuel type at the moment because of how it's produced, but it can be produced cleanly using renewable energy sources instead. So the hope is that more clean hydrogen will be created so that transportation types that currently don't translate well over to straight-up battery-based electricity, like flying, can use that fuel instead. So there's a lot going on in this space, and though there is arguably warranted criticism that few entities with fleets of vehicles are moving fast enough to actually hit their commitments, their goals, including governments, it's still generally being seen as heartening that there's any movement in the first place. 
especially considering that those who are first movers in this type of effort, though they can usually save some money once the investments are made and can claim moral superiority of a kind and tax deductions, things like that, for going more climate-friendly, they're still paying a lot higher initial costs than their slower competitors will because those who are laggards with this type of upgrade will benefit from cheaper vehicles, more widely available infrastructure, and will possibly be able to invest at a moment in which more stuff is deployed and better standards for all of these things have been developed. Everyone right now is at the bleeding edge of all of these technologies, which means they will have inferior vehicles and chargers and everything else 10 years from now, when new generations of all of these things are being deployed, while their competitors, who have been dragging their feet, can just buy the better stuff without having to replace previously invested in EV tech, some of which may no longer be relevant, and the rest of which will be aging and possibly far less good than the new alternatives that are just then coming to market. Whatever their motivations for making these relatively early investments, though, that these entities with their large pocketbooks and expansive fleets are making them now means it's more likely that the individuals and smaller businesses and agencies and other such entities will soon be able to buy these sorts of things more affordably and in a more convenient fashion. Because the chargers, the repair shops, the replacement parts, and the requisite standards for all these new components and systems will have already been not just imagined, but well road-tested and fully built out by and for these larger, wealthier first movers. book I'd like to recommend today is called The Exponential Age, How Accelerating Technology is Transforming Business, Politics, and Society by Azim Azar. I actually heard about this book because Azim Azar runs a really wonderful newsletter called The Exponential Age, in which he talks about technology and amplifying effects of technology. And he's heavily involved in the tech space and a bit of a techno-optimist, but that's what you want when you're looking at possibilities for things like electric vehicles, for instance. What is possible above and beyond the attributes of these things that we typically discuss in common discourse? What does it mean to have several orders of magnitude fewer parts in each of these vehicles? in terms of reparability, in terms of wear and tear? What does that mean for the economics behind vehicle support structures, like mechanics, like fueling stations? These are the sorts of things that are discussed in his newsletter, but also in this book. It talks a lot about compounding effects. It talks a lot about the effects that technological changes and especially rapid technological transformations can have on society and politics and everything else. If any of that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of The Exponential Age by Azim Azar. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find the show notes and transcript for this and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. You can find a collection of my other projects, including my other podcasts, at understandery.com. And feel free to reach out and say howdy on social media. I'm Colin Wright on Facebook, and at Colin is my name on most of the other ones. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week. Mm -hmm.